our passage from Genesis 2 this morning. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From, it, from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, na the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his, his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, this is a fantastic passage. Uh, it actually, it makes me think of this interview uh, that Tim Keller did. He's a pastor in New York City. Uh, if there's anyone I want to be when I grow up, it'd be to be Tim Keller, but with hair, uh, which is what I think my future is, the hair part. Uh, but he has this interview where he's talking about how things have changed. He, he planted a church in Manhattan in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, and how things have changed in the city. And he said that there was a generation, uh, even before he came to New York City, where the, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, was to be good, like to be a good person, a moral person. And then, you know, then the gospel is like, hey, we all know you're not good. You have this crippling guilt. Um, and so the gospel is good news that uh, you don't have to live in that guilt. Uh, and then there became a generation, which was most of the time that he was a pastor there, which is uh, the meaning of life is to be free and to do whatever you want. Like it's freedom to do what you want. The, the, the pinnacle of life is freedom where nobody can tell you what not to do. And that's when he, uh, you know, shared the, the good news of the gospel is that actually uh, you might say that, but you're going to give yourself to tons of things uh, anyway. 
Uh, and those things that you give yourself to, whether it's work or politics or the arts, all of those things will then kind of consume you and like, you know, diminish you as a person. You won't be free at all. You'll actually be in shackles to those things. Uh, and the good news is that God actually offers the only true freedom you can have in Jesus. But then he says if he was a pastor there now because he retired uh, recently, he said that he would have to rethink it all because the main meaning of life now that people kind of ascribe to, that they hold on to, is to be true to yourself. Like that is the thing that you need to be and to achieve. Have some sort of truth to yourself uh, and to make it. You need to to discover it and then shape your life around those desires and urges, passions, even your ethnicity, your taste. You need to form all of that together into your true self, and then you have to be it. Uh, the meaning of life is to be true to yourself, but to do that, you have to create yourself. Uh, you have to make it up, because there's no one out there who's just like you. We know that from Mr. Rogers. We know that from uh, you know, our moms tell us, you're special, there's no one like you. Well, then it's horrible. There's no one to look at, you know, like, oh, well, they're, they're my race and they're my gender and all, of but we're different, you know, like I just said about Tim Keller. We're the same, except he has ha no hair and I have hair. So I can't look to him to build my identity and my meaning. So you have to build it yourself. Then you have to find people who will accept you. Essentially, if you could summarize the big things that we're all pursuing and trying to have and hold on to, it would be identity and belonging. But both of those things have to be achieved. They have to be built. You have to build an identity. And then you have to build a place of belonging. And it has to be crafted and you have to protect it. It has to be cultivated over a long period of time. And in some cases, you have to make grand efforts to kind of try to build some sort of fence or boundary around yourself or move to a whole new city where there, maybe then, with who you are being true to yourself, you can truly then belong. Uh, you have to fight then to be recognized for your true self. Uh, you have to perform it. You have to prove it. And, and the truth is, like, creating and maintaining that self-brand uh, and, and fighting for that meaning uh, and belonging is just incredibly hard. Uh, you might, you know, get into a company that has all the cool values, you know, and then you realize they're just like any other company. Uh, you might find friends that they really get me for who I really am, you know, until something goes weird. And then you're like, well, now they don't love me for who I really am. The gospel, though, offers this incredible, liberating reality. That through Jesus, and this is the only place that this can be true, your identity is something not that you have to make and earn, but something that's received. It's an identity given, not gained. And then, and then from receiving that identity from God, from Jesus, who made you a new creation in him, he places you in him, all of this wonderful stuff, it's in there that you are affirmed and have belonging. Apart from anything that you've done or acquired or achieved, that's, the, that's like a real belonging. Uh, Christianity offers the only uh, identity that can be received and not earned. Uh, and Genesis chapter 2 kind of sets up that whole story. It's not the complete story of identity received and not earned, 
It's not the complete story of belonging, but it's the roots. It's the beginning of what is a human identity. What is human belonging? And so today we're going to talk about the belonging created by God. I know often I don't tell you what I'm going to say, but today I'm going to. Uh, We're going to talk about belonging that's created by God. We're going to talk about our identity as embodied persons. And we're going to talk about our identity as partners in cultivation. Uh, In this passage, uh, a poem initiates it. You know, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, it's, fast. it's like, hey, I'm going to tell you about, you know, the generations of all the people when the things were being formed. It's really great. But then it shifts. This is a whole new section, and that's how poetry is used through the Old Testament, to start a whole new section, kind of like songs and uh, Tolkien's books, if anyone, you know, reads Tolkien's books. He's copying. Anyway, This time, though, it's not a story like Genesis 1 in the first part of chapter 2, where there's this expansive temple that's being built in the cosmos. This is now suddenly zoomed in and really tight lined garden, a land, a place. It's not going by days anymore, but what we find is God creating a place, forming people intimately, you know, breathing into nostrils, dirt, ribs. Uh, community being cultivated, and we see a gardener God. It's pretty exciting to me. Uh, The beginning of this whole thing, it's this gardener God stuff, uh, which is where we kind of find belonging. Uh, There's this image of, again, just in Genesis 1, where there's just wild wilderness, but this time it says, you know, there was open wild country, is one way to to translate it. There There was just bush and brush, uh, it was just a, a land that was uncultivated, uh, just, just dirt and, and wasteland. But then God gets his hands dirty. That's what it says in verse 8. It's my, some of my favorite words in the Bible. It says, the Lord God planted a garden. Like a gardener God. God, hands dirty. Uh, his hands establishing a garden. Uh, he's setting rivers in place, trees, Uh, fruits, vegetables, God in the dirt. Uh, This is also, he talks about rivers that are flowing from this garden. And the rivers have names and they're valleys and they're known and they're they're real places. Uh, The concept of uh, these rivers that that from it uh, bring life to the whole known world at the time uh, is that the, the rivers would flood and then recede. And they provided irrigation. That's where all things were grown, was from these four rivers in their whole mind, in those valleys, those fertile valleys, and it starts with this garden that God has placed and he's cultivated with his hands in the dirt. And he makes a really unique and special place. And I just want to like, think about the, the first people to hear this passage again. That's a theme through this whole series. A people who were born uh, priceless because they were worthless. Uh, they were also placeless. Like, they had some vague recollection of uh, Abraham and Sarah and, you know, Isaac and Jacob and Rachel and Leah. They had, way back when, they had a place that was theirs. But that was like a big mystery, like foggy place. They had no idea where they were from. Uh, that's the, the reality of five generations of slavery. They had no heritage. They had no place. 
And then they're just wandering in the desert to this place that God's going to show them, a land of promise, a land of milk and honey. Uh, But in the midst of that, you know, they're in this wilderness and you can't help but feel like there's no place for me, right? Uh, You talk to any refugee or any immigrant who has to leave their place in the instant and never go back. Or you think about all the people in Syria and Turkey who are like, they're not going back to those places anymore. Or the five million refugees of of the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's, There's not a place, even if they go back to that place, it's so different, so destroyed, it's so disrupted, Right? Uh, I think that some of us struggle to understand that kind of sense of like not having anywhere to return to, that home that does not exist, that place where the land and the smells remind you of something that is deep and in the past. We only have smells for today, right, and memories for today. And all of this, uh, if you think about people reading it from that lens, a complete lack of belonging to a place Uh, you see uh, God creating intentionally, cultivating on purpose, a place for humans to inhabit. God making the place. Uh, The image is really of a royal kind of temple garden uh, that would be adjacent to a big temple. And then, you know, they have these gardens that are either for the, the royalty, the kings and the queens and the nobility, where everything that is cultivated is for those royal people. And they have, you know, they have the gardeners. The rich people have the gardeners that they kind of cultivate stuff and then they give it to the wealthy. Or uh, a temple garden that exists next to a temple where all of the fruits and the vegetables and the animals and everything that's cultivated gets pumped into the temple so that God can be pleased. And that all of the work and effort is for that. Uh, What's fascinating about this is that God is creating and cultivating a garden not so that he can reap benefits, but he's placing trees and fruits and animals in the garden so that humanity can receive and be provided for, not the other way around. And what ends up being really key as you read this entire passage is that what makes this garden Eden, what makes this place the birth of all life and all abundance and all flourishing, is not the plants and the animals, it's not even Adam and Eve and being so good at making stuff. What makes it the Eden is that God is there and present, and that's where anybody who ever wants to belong, you will only find it in a place with God. That's the only belonging you can have. With his presence comes provision, Not for himself, but for those that he's formed. Huge difference. Uh, God saying, I want to be with you. I want to be there for you. I want want to cultivate a place and put you in it so that you will know me and that you will have everything that you need to be the human you were created to be. A garden set up, created for thriving. Uh, You were made for the garden that you didn't create. Uh, So you are made for a belonging that you don't make for yourself. Uh, You might think, oh, I will feel belonging if I get the house and I decorate it the right way and it looks really cool and like people can't tell it's knockoff West Elm, you know, like that's, that's when I will belong. But what the Bible is saying is, no, you will only feel belonging deep into your bones 
when you know that you exist in a cultivated place by God for you to know God. That's it. He's speaking uh, to all of this, this abundant life. And this is what Jesus means when he says, I came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. That's what he is talking about. That Jesus didn't come into this world to fix us so that we can serve him and like be his slaves better. But God came into this world that we might be whole and healed and have abundant life. Know where we belong and know who we belong to. Uh, Even Jesus' life, as you think about uh, the gardener God, it's just pretty uh, poetic. Uh, I think that Jesus was intentional when he's like, on the night that he knows he's going to be betrayed, he says, let's go to a garden, and I'm going to be in that garden. And it's in the midst of a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, that he cries out to God, and he has this mutual submission with the Father that says, okay, I will give my life. I will lay down my life in obedience in love. And then it's no like mistake that where, where Jesus dies is in the, the place of the trash heap, like the, the Calvary, you know, it's like, that's such a nice name for us now, you know, like, oh, Calvary. But it's really, what it means is the trash heap, the place of the skull, dead, wasteland. Jesus goes there to die and then rise again, where? In a gardener, in a garden where he's confused by his closest friends as a man who was like working the land. Born again, like brand new life, resurrected Jesus coming out of the tomb in the garden to make all things new again, where you can only find that kind of belonging only comes through that kind of resurrection, and it only comes through God. So that's what he cultivates, the gardener God. Uh, Then there's all this stuff about man being intentionally and intimately formed. Uh, From dirt, it says. It's a... the, the real kind of essence of it is he's biodegradable. This man is biodegradable. Uh, he's like one of those straws that we have to drink out of. Like, for real, like a whisper. Uh, like, this kind of, you know, produces something, but it's, it's of the dirt, and it will go back to the dirt. Uh, there were also other, you know, the other kind of ancient views of how did humans come into existence often is of like a god kind of cutting themselves and bleeding onto the dirt and then creating clay and molding a person. Uh, Like if you think of clay like terracotta, it's kind of like this blood-dirt mixture, right? Uh, What's unique about this is that God brings Adam out of the dirt, molds him out of the dirt, and then breathes into him, breathes uh, life Uh, Ruah, the spirit, gets breathed into him, and he becomes a living, whole being, Uh, which is very different, because what it's saying is that, that man is a physical and, like, soul person, that there's, there's like an essence within you, a personality, and uh, an intellect, an ability to process, like, the essence of a person, and it's only real when it's in a body, and, and this sort of interwoven uh, physical and spiritual dimension is what exists. That's what is happening. That's what's on display when it says that God formed him out of the dirt and then breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being or a living one. Like that's literally what it is, a living one. 
a whole person. And that's not typically how we think about people or persons. We separate body and soul or personality and the physical. Uh, we separate them out. And that's what people have done for like generation after generation. We're like not special people. Uh, the Greeks did that uh, really well. And they would describe saying like we're just people in a cage. This body is a cage. And what we need to do is somehow get out of our body uh, and achieve the true essence of ourselves, which is our brains and how we think. It's true in the, like the enlightenment of uh, Rousseau and Descartes of, you know, like, I think, therefore I am. That's the essence of a, of a being is separated from the thinking. And you're like, what does that matter? This is why it matters. If the body is just a body, then all you have to do is be like, oh, this person isn't actually very smart. Or uh, maybe we could get to this body before it becomes a person. Or maybe we can separate the brain from the physical. Uh, this is essentially how all rationale for every slavery that's ever happened in the history of the world, every infanticide, every caste system is based off of we can separate persons from like their heads and their bodies. Uh, murder, genocide, all of it, as far back into the ancient world. Why does that happen? Because we're just bodies. And some people have, you know, brains and some people don't. Uh, it leads also to a disregard of the body. You know, it doesn't, my body doesn't matter. I'm just trapped inside of this flesh. I've got to get out. That's why the Greeks, you know, their ultimate aim was like suicide, it also leads to a disdain or a control over the body. I don't want my nose to be who I am. I will change it, right? Many other things too. It also leads to this, this understanding that like I am my carnal cravings. Like that's just who I am. Uh, it leads to you being the, the person that gets to dictate your own self-view. You know, why? Because I can separate my actions and my physical life from my like mental philosophical life. You know, like, I'm not a racist. Oh, why? Because I said I'm not a racist. I think I'm not a racist. Therefore, I am not. It doesn't matter what I do with my body or with my life. I'm a good person. Oh, why are you a good person, Brad? Because I think I am. Because I know that I am a good person. And it doesn't matter if what I do with my body or with my life isn't good, it's because I think that I am good. And that's the crazy separation. What the Bible, and this is what's unique about the Bible, is it is saying that your organs, your gender, your nose, your eyes, your DNA, your blood pressure, all of that stuff inside of you is who you are, as well as all of the stuff of your personality and your story and your history and the way that you think and the way that you connect to God, all of that is who you are too. And you cannot separate these two things. You are a whole person. And Genesis 2 is saying you were intentionally crafted body and soul. And this soul, uh, the Hebrew word for it, is nevesh. It's just a cool one because it's easy to say. Nevesh is this, and it's different than how we think about soul because, again, we kind of tapped into we're floating clouds. But nevesh is uh, all of the stuff that makes you who you are, uh, the things that you like, the way that you interact with the world, uh, the way that you talk, the way that you think that th some things are funny and other things aren't funny. Like the essence of who you are is within like also 
the way that your body is formed and shaped. It's who you are too. And this is the biblical view that you are an integrated person. And we do have this like in life. It's not like completely, you know, separated out. So if you are like, a, if you've ever had a friend who's uh, become a survivor of cancer, they get this, this new label, right? A cancer survivor. And they get a ring a bell or something like that. And it means that this person has battled cancer. They've had the surgeries. They've received the medicine. Uh, they, they got to walk through it all. And on the other side, they are a cancer survivor, right? And what you don't say is like, oh, man, your body survived cancer. No, you say like, no, you are a cancer survivor, Why do we say that? Because we know it took something beyond just like some sort of physical surgery and it was an emotional thing, it was a physical thing, it was a mental thing, it was at all of who they are and on the other side of it, they're forever changed because they went through all of that. So they're marked by it, it's who they are, even though it's just a physical thing, right? No, it's like who they are now, right? That's what the Bible is saying. Uh, Now, this all kind of goes beyond some sort of philosophical endeavor, and this is why. The Bible is saying is life is embodied. Life is embodied. It was breathed into us, and we became a being. Pain and brokenness is also embodied too. There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's profoundly like changing of like how we think of this guy who just researched how uh, physical trauma leads to mental trauma and back and forth, and that you cannot separate the two out. The body like, actually keeps the score of the emotional. Uh, and more than all of those things, sin is embodied too. It's not just things that we think or say. It's like it, it actually impacts who we actually are. And the reason that that is important is because then the only path towards some sort of hope or salvation is then an embodied Christ, uh, a, a God who, who isn't just like imaginarily perfect or philosophically perfect or philosophically good and loving, but physically here with us alive, an embodied salvation that, it, that it's actually flesh and blood and bone on a cross, dying for the sake of embodied people, that the resurrection then is an embodied hope, that God walks out of the tomb, walks out of death, and we can all look to him and say, oh, all that is broken within me is made new in that resurrected Christ. That's like one of the most unique things about Christianity, is that it's a hope embodied, a physical tangible hope, not a mystical, allegorical, metaphorical hope, but a, but a tangible hope. And so we live uh, integrated lives of hope, salvation, joy, sin, grief, all of those things. And then uh, we get to uh, the creation of the woman. Uh, she doesn't get a name to the chapter three, so she's just the woman, And what's amazing is that that God creates this intentional man and puts him in the garden. Why? To work it and to care for it. Uh, He's there in the garden. And then God becomes aware of his need. Uh, That God knows, oh, he needs something. And now there's a whole bunch of people that are like, ah, Adam was lonely. 
You know, Adam needed companionship. Or uh, we might get confused and be like, oh, Adam needed someone to procreate with. I mean, that's, that's like going to end up being part of it. But if you look in the Bible, it's, he was placed there to work the land and care for the garden. And then God says, he actually needs somebody else. Like, he's not capable of cultivating and caring for this garden. He is in need. And so God uh, takes them to all these animals. It's this great, you know, part of like, does this do it for you? Does this eagle do it for you? How about this, you know, giraffe? Is this giraffe going to help you? Uh, how about the cow? How about the chicken? You know, it's like, no, no, it's pretty funny. I'm glad you laughed, Shannon. <laughs> and so he takes uh, a rib, which really it's this word side, like the side of a building, the side of a temple, the side of a wall. And then it says that God builds it up, fashions it, uh, takes from that, from that sameness, uh, meaning that uh, all of the stuff that was said before about an integrated person with Adam is also true about the woman that's getting created and built up in the sameness. Uh, it's all applied to the woman, except she's intentionally different, made with strength and with a purpose. And then she's intentionally bonded and compatible to this Adam, uh, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, like compatible. And this word, uh, helper, uh, which your Bible might be translated uh, helper for, uh, some do this terrible thing called a help meet. That's like not the word. Anyway, uh, if your Bible says help meet, I've already written the translators and said, this is wrong. Trust me, I have a master's and you have a PhD. Anyway, uh, this word helper, the vast majority of the time in the Old Testament, this word is applied to God. So if you think about the Psalms, like Psalm 28, when it says, God is my ever-present helper, it's, that's how it's used. These dependent people of Israel, uh, a, a frequent, frequent word that they would use to describe God or call on him would be, could you be my helper? Like, I'm in desperate need, usually of like, uh, you know, physical need, emotional need, like stressed, uh, terrified. They need that helper God. And so you might say, oh, like, uh, you know, that's clear. It's not a condescending phrase. It's actually an elevated phrase. Uh, but then you might be like, oh, but what about the times when it's not? That's probably where this word for woman is coming from. Maybe like when individuals or nations, that's when it's used as well. Uh, when it's not applied to God, it's applied as a, a helping neighbor or being part of a geopolitical alliance. Like Syria is our helper, that, that we depend on one another to survive the waves and waves of Babylon or Egypt coming to, to kind of crush us. So the same was like that kind of helper. Those are the only ways it's used. And really what it, this, this phrase uh, created as a helpful, helper suitable for Adam, uh, if you could translate it differently, like in German, because they can add words to any, like they just add letters to the ends of every word until it means what they want it to mean. It would be a counterpart partner. Uh, not merely like this reproductive gender, which is like constant in all the other uh, myths, or not other myths, but the myths around the creation of the world. This is super different. It's talking about uh, the woman being created as a counterpart partner, needed, essential, crucial to cultivate the garden. 
to care for it, to work for it, to enjoy the fruit, to enjoy the presence of God, to enjoy and to live and to know God uh, ourselves, Adam is in need of the woman, this counterpart partner. And then she is brought to Adam. And then Adam desires her. He's like, this is really good. Like, this is, he says, bone of my bone, flesh. This is the same. This is the helper I've always needed. And then it says that Adam surrenders his spot and then clings to her, which is completely countercultural to all the other things. Like, what typically it's like, oh, a, woman, a man goes into the town, negotiates with the father, takes the woman, and goes away, and the woman never looks back. Like, that's the typical mode. What it's saying here, this sort of parenthetical statement, if you look at 24, it says, then the man shall leave the father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. It's saying, this is why we do that. Because Adam left and clinged and like desperately held on to her. Because he like was so dependent and needy and his desire was for her. Uh, And this is really like kind of, while it's different than cultural norms, completely in line with the whole story of Jesus. That Christ, you know, surrenders his position and he goes to the church and he pursues the church and he reaches out for her and he clings on to the church. Why? The Bible says because it was the joy set before him for his love for the church, for his desire for the church, the bride. A bride is given God's like great value, the the value of God's life, his death, his resurrection. It's what Paul writes in Ephesians 5 where it says, Christ laid down his life for her who the church. And all of this is to say that women are of the same crucial value, uh, equal like essence of like image of God, but also equal essence of stewards of all that God has created. And so men, you know, you ought to treat women accordingly. I guess that's like a basic. Uh, And women ought to treat men accordingly too. And there's a lot that's broken around this. Like we're still not to Genesis 3. Uh, But I do want to make some things like super clear around, uh, you know, what this passage doesn't say. Because I told you what it does say. And I'm going to tell you what it doesn't say. Because it's one of those things that's really important. It doesn't say that women were created as sexual objects for men. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible, uh, this passage doesn't say that women were created to cook and to clean and to bake and to do laundry. Uh, In fact, no roles are given. No roles are given except this role uh, that they are created to mutually depend and need one another to experience God and his flourishing and then to cultivate what he's made. Uh, Genesis 1 is like often this passage that people, because again, it's, it says when God made man, but it should be mankind anyway, because he says right afterwards, he, made, he created them male and female, male and female, he created them, blah, 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 to have dominion and subdue and cultivate the earth. That command is for all of us. So there's no like machismo thing that like a man is only truly a man when he's dominating something. Like that's just like a false teaching. Like, that's not in the Bible. It might be some sort of physiological like thing. I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but that's not what the Bible says. It also says, doesn't say that women are less important than men or less the image of God. In fact, it's, you know, it should be noted that there's just mutual condescension. Man leaving home, woman coming to man. 
the poem about the woman. It's mutual need and desire. The passage also doesn't say that the future is female and that women are goddesses and men are dirt. Like the passage also doesn't say that. Uh, Though there's plenty of those narratives in the ancient world that like women are the divine and men are what's wrong. The passage doesn't say, oh, you know, men aren't crucial. God made man and he was like, whoops. (laughs) Gotta make a woman now. So that, you know, the, the man can be babysat because he's just too awful and violent. It doesn't say that. We were made. Like, that's not what this passage says. The passage also isn't really about power except for God's power uh, to cultivate and to give exactly what we need. Not just physical needs, but relational needs and spiritual needs. And so all of that stuff... Uh, that I'm saying this passage doesn't say. We taste and see every day, right? Uh, One way or another. And you don't have to be in church to taste and see it. You could be outside the church and taste and see it. Uh, All of that is the resulting of curse that we'll get to in about four weeks. So there you go. Instead of the curse, though, what we see in this passage is a woman and a man coming together in ordained and cultivated community to participate in God's work. Why? Because they are God's work. Uh, And that, just just like an aside, is really um, what marriage is. It's a woman and a man depending on their sameness and their differences to live a life cultivated by God for his purpose and for the cultivating of this world. I'm going to say it again because I didn't put it on a slide. Marriage is a woman and a man depending on their sameness and difference to live a life cultivated by God for his purpose, the purpose of cultivating his world. That means that they're partners and helpers, giving themselves to one another so that they together might glorify God. Don't let this world trick you. It isn't shallow romantic happiness. It isn't fleeting sexual desire. It isn't um, uh, just a way to build yourself up socioeconomically. Marriage is something created by God to cultivated by him so that we might depend on one another to make something of this world. And that's what's needed. Uh, It's for a bound unity, a one flesh creating community and fellowship with God. Uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his final sermon, uh, which was given at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., uh, it was a sermon titled, The Great uh, Remaining Awake Through the Great Revolution, which is a great title. He was good at titles. But he said this. He said, I can never be who I ought to be until you are who you ought to be. And you can never be who you ought to be until I am the way that I ought to be. You see what he's doing there? And he says, that's the way the universe is made. That is how it is structured. That I will never be who I am supposed to be until you're the way you're supposed to be. And you're never gonna be the way you're supposed to be unless I'm the way that I'm supposed to be. The world is made for that kind of human dependence and bond 
for one another. And this passage, I think, is what a moment where that was achieved. Verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If I had to be like, oh, what is that about? It's about them being like, you are who you are supposed to be, and I'm who I'm supposed to be. And that is like that shalom that they experienced. And that's the result of having an identity and a belonging that's derived from God. Being uh, fully seen, fully known, and not embarrassed about it or horrified by it. Uh, I can't help but realize and know that the whole uh, story of, of history from that moment on was bent towards Jesus on a cross, naked, like physically naked, uh, mocked, uh, seen, exposed for our shame and, and our lack of being who we are supposed to be. That Christ comes into the world and says, and he looks at like all of the brokenness that I described about like what this passage is not. And all of the pain and all of the grief that we have within our genders and with our battles with one another. And he says, I will die and I will surrender and my shame will overcome your shame. Taking it on, his nakedness for your nakedness. His uh, unashamedness for your shamedness. Why? So that you might know who you are that you might become a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God, that you would be known, that you would be loved, that you would be affirmed, and all of the things that we wish we could get by making our own identity, it's what we only get from Jesus because he was the one who died and rose again. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I thank you for the power of the gospel to redeem and restore what's broken and what's wrong. I pray for us to be a church that, um, and a people, uh, individuals, that derive our meaning and our belonging from you uh, and you alone. Um, that you would teach us how to be, uh, teach us to be at rest, uh, teach us to be powerful, strong, confident, ourselves in the way that you made us women, uh, and men. Jesus, I thank you for your word and the encouragement that it is to our souls. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen.